what companies would you want to be invested in? Yeah, that's a no-brainer. Invest in the companies that will survive the depression. You know, hold to the things that will will stand, that that will, uh, uh, you know, be be able to withstand the shaking. Think about how pathetic we are when we grasp so tightly onto things that aren't even going to be here after the Lord shakes everything again. You know, I mean, you don't want to hang on to something that's just going to disintegrate. We want to hang on to the things that are solid, that will last. Now think about what things will last when God shakes everything again. Will your car, your house, your job, your friends, your pleasures? You know, he says in verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. That's what will be shaken, God's kingdom. And that's what we need to hang on to. Nothing else is worth hanging on to and won't last. Comments and thoughts on that concept in 25 to 27. Is there a reason he shakes heaven also um, to show that those things are worth holding on to? Well, or maybe when he says heaven here, he means more like the heavens. Um, You know, not just the earth, but the whole universe. I think it may be more that idea. Not so much that he shakes the place where he lives. That'd be my, my thing. Well, what kind of attitude should we serve God with? Gratitude. Look at what he's done for us. There is so much reason to be thankful to God. And what other attitude do we need? Humility. Humility. He says reverence and awe. Great respect for God. God is a powerful friend, but he's a dangerous enemy. And and we've got to really be serious about what we give God. You know, reverence and awe is pretty strong, but that's appropriate because he is a consuming fire. His character provides the pattern for our worship. If he is a consuming fire, our service had better be extremely respectful and serious. There is a place for godly fear. And uh, when you think about who the Lord is, you come before him with reverence. You give your life to him with great seriousness. Comments and questions? Chapter 13 are concluding exhortations and other kinds of things uh, that you do at the end of the letter. But don't, don't think that when you get to the conclusion in these letters, these are insignificant points. In fact, some of his strongest points are going to come in this chapter. Some of, you know, this is where you give those concluding exhortations a little bit more force. And in, in some ways he will do that here. Uh, so, chapter, one, uh, chapter 13 verses 1 through 6. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Now notice some of the themes in these exhortations. He starts in verse 1 with the theme of love. And even in verse 1, what do you see about love? Evidently they have it because he told them to continue with it. Okay, I agree. What else do you see? Well, 
How does this relate to the context we've just been studying? Something unshakable. Yeah, it's something that continues. Love of the brethren, let that continue. It's not going to be shaken. It's it's there for the long term. Um, so that's one of the unshakable items. We know that love of the brethren is, by Jesus in John 13, a hallmark of being a true Christian. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's that's you know how you can really tell. Um, but, but notice this love of the brethren. I ran across a statement that I thought was pretty uh, <clears throat> important. That Jesus' blood, not our own blood, should define our kin. Who are our brothers? Not the people we're related to by our blood, but the people we're related to by Jesus' blood. Those are our true brothers. And those are who we give special um, attachment to. We, we're, we're bonded with them in a special way. Now what he does, I think, in this section is to give special application to what it means to love the brethren. If we do let love of the brethren continue, what will we do? Show hospitality to strangers. Yes. That would be a sign of love. And I think here we're primarily thinking about Christians who we don't know. It's not that we shouldn't show hospitality to non-Christians, but this is in the framework of loving the brethren. So Christians who may be traveling, think about Third John and uh, Gaius showing hospitality to uh, uh, Christians who were traveling for the sake of Christ and they were strangers to him. So he says, show hospitality. Um... To, to, to these uh, brethren you did not know before. Uh, why, what's the reason he gives for doing that? Some unknownly entertained angels. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Think of any examples of that in the Bible? Abraham. Abraham. And same angels. Lot, yeah. Um, that, that, that is kind of amazing. I mean, Abraham didn't know who they were. What if he had sort of given them the, you know, move on, guys. We, we don't have anything here for you. you know, or whatever. He would have lost out on his opportunity to entertain angels. I don't know. What do you make of that? hospitality to angels today? I don't know. You reckon there's any possibility of that? It's, it's curious that he says that. I mean, I'm not going around uh, trying to uh, unmask everybody to find out if it's an angel. But, but I mean, um, well, what would you think if you knew there were some angels uh, among brethren, you know, appearing in human form like they did Abraham, would that maybe give you a little, little bit more desire to uh, show hospitality uh, to I all? Get a little more intimidated. <laughs> but too, uh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, it'd be kind of exciting to think that that could happen. Uh, I don't know whether that can happen or not, but I do know that in Matthew 25, Jesus says essentially, when you show hospitality one of my brothers, it's like you're showing it to me. You know, Jesus considers that to be really done to him. Uh, so. Whether or not we can show hospitality to angels, I guess we can to Jesus himself in that way. Uh, so you might think about that. I don't know, maybe there are angels that you know take human form today. I wouldn't deny that possibility. And if that's the case, that would really make it exciting to be hospitable, even to those we don't know. Um, but but do, would we do that? I mean, maybe we, maybe we do, maybe we don't. I mean, what would you do with, um, you know... I don't know, Christians that are traveling through, that you know about, I mean, would you would you readily receive them in your home? Um, or, or maybe Christians that um, need a place to stay for a while, I mean, you know, whatever, I mean, you know, how, how readily do we do those sorts of things? It's kind of uh, 
you know, a little um, inconvenient, uh, you know. I mean, having anybody in your home is, you know, you kind of have to be on good behavior. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's not the same as, you know, just you all being there. Um, so I, I think that's something worth, you know, giving some attention to. He, he does here. Thoughts or comments on that? You think about, you mentioned doing this to Jesus and the possibility of, of angels, and then you think about how we treat each other even in the church. If we disagree with one another or or whatever, if we were to think about it, <laughs> I mean, think, think about Jesus coming in, and you know it's Jesus, and he says something, and that's not right, you idiot, you know, and, and go off on, or whatever, however it is that we, you know, cold shoulder, all the things that we are known to do to one another, even in the church. And maybe you keep that in your mind with everything. And how, how would the, <laughs> what difference would it make if, if it were actually Jesus himself? That's a really good point. Maybe this is less about angels and more about how we treat each other, too. Just, you know, as if we were entertaining angels. Do you remember, uh, I don't know if this is exactly the point of that song, but it came to my mind, uh, that 214, you know, have, have you seen the face of Christ in your brother? You know, I mean, maybe we ought to look for the face of Christ in our brother more. <laughs> And, uh, I don't know, I mean, think about it this way, I mean, um, what if, uh, what if, say, one of our children or one of our parents were to be um, in a position where they could use hospitality? You know, how do we feel toward brethren, maybe in another place, that are kind and bend over backwards to them? You know, isn't that really encouraging? You really feel, man, I'm so glad that, that those brethren took care of my son or daughter or my mom or dad or whatever. Well, isn't that the way Jesus feels about all of us? We're all his family. And so when we take care of each other well, doesn't he sort of see that the same way we would in that situation? Listen, uh, we can think of uh, like treat other treat others as you would have them to treat you. And uh, if you were out and didn't know anybody, you'd be thankful for somebody just to come up to you and invite them, invite you to their home and just be hospitable to you. So I don't know, you do that to somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. <coughs> that sums it up. What was the other application he makes of brotherly love here? Remember prisoners. Yeah, absolutely. That was such a, um, perhaps a more common thing then for people to be imprisoned for the cause of Christ. And uh, you're, you're in the body too. Remember them like you were in prison with them. You know, sharing that experience with them. Care about that with them. After all, we're in the same war. I think there is so much that you see in the Lord in terms of how much he empathizes and identifies himself with us. And that we need to do that. You know, if, we, if, you, if some of your brethren are in prison, then share that experience with them as if you were in there with them. And you could say the same thing. I mean, what about your brethren who are, you know, suffering in other ways? Would it not be important for us to try to share at least mentally and emotionally with them in that. All right, comments or questions through verse 3. Just an example, when we came back from Florida, Florida this last time, we stayed in somebody's house, uh, some people that we've never met. Still haven't met. <laughs> but through their one of their children or something, it's like we needed a place to stay. and made some calls said, okay, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so... You know, one of their other sons was there, and, but the parents weren't. They were fine with it, and you had no idea who we were. Who's house you stayed in? Kim Brunson. Brian, I figured. 
I doubt that you're the only people who've stayed there. <laughs> yeah. And isn't that encouraging? You know, yeah, that's one of the reasons I shared it. I just think that things like that encourage all of us. But there's so many things that we, so many applications to this, love the brethren and things that we can do and thinking of each other as Jesus, as doing it to Jesus. But just little things, especially young people, well, not especially, but some of those things come to mind, just, just seeing all of them. But, you know, and treating one another in classes and, and respect for them, each other and for uh, older people, uh, you know, lots of things like that that you don't, I don't know, I don't know if they necessarily come natural, but it, I think you'd be on a different behavior around, you know, the president or somebody, yet we need to be on that behavior all the time around one another those types of things. What keeps us from loving one another like we should? What's the biggest barrier? We know each other. (laughs) 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 I think that's part of it. But some of it too is we misjudge each other. Um, We have misperceptions. Um, And so in some cases, you know, some people are just plain different and I don't think we always give them a chance different than I am, so therefore... Therefore, yeah. they must be out of step. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But just, the, you know, personalities are so far apart, and I think that sometimes we don't work hard enough to bridge that gap. What is that? What's our problem? Comfort zone, but... Selfishness. Selfishness, that's what I think. We think too much about ourselves. No one? Isn't that a real struggle with some of this kind of thing? I mean, in treating each other well, we're more focused on us. We're not even thinking about them. Or if we do think about them, we think about how much they've hurt us. You know, we feel resentment, bitterness, you know, whatever. And just trying to, you know, get our minds off of ourselves. And really caring about the other person. Isn't that exactly what the Lord did with us? Wow. And it seems to me like that really is our transition into the rest of this paragraph. Look at the other two subjects. Look at verse 4. What's he warning against here? Purity in sexual relations. Yeah, absolutely. And why are people sexually immoral? <laughs> Isn't that... I mean, Wow! That's, I want this for me. I want to feel good about myself. I want maybe sensual pleasure, or I want another, you know, um, kind of a star on my crown, you know, whatever, not really star, but I want another want a trophy in my case. You know, or I want the attention, the affection, the appreciation, the feeling like I'm special to somebody, or I want my husband, wife, girlfriend, whatever, to be jealous so that they'll like me better or want me more. There's a zillion things, but all of them come back to I'm thinking about me. Selfishness is ultimately the fruit of all sexual immorality. I mean, after all, if you really cared about the other person, would you, you know, want to tarnish them? And, and look at 5 and 6. Now, what's his, uh, what's he telling us to avoid in 5 and 6? Covetousness. Yeah. And, and covetousness really involves what? Wanting something that you don't have. Yeah. Selfishness. Yeah. And so it goes right back to wanting this for myself. You're, are you ever covetous? Would you call it that if you want somebody else to have something? <laughs> We don't call it that, do we? It's not the same thing. For whatever reason, when we're when we're covetous, it's always wanting it for ourselves. <laughs> and that really comes back to several things, but, but it comes back to our attitude of wanting for me. Um, maybe it also, we can think a little bit about just being more detached from material things, not being so close to those things. 
and being content with what we have because we really value God's presence. We don't care about the other things. If we have the Lord, that's what matters. You can be content because He'll never leave you. He's always with you. It's kind of interesting that uh, some of them had been forsaking their assembling together, but God is promising He'll never abandon us. He'll never do to us what some of them were trying to do to each other. You know, and and if if we have the Lord with us, who cares what I have in this world? So really, all of this is sort of about love and avoiding self, self-centeredness. Comments and thoughts on all this through verse 6. Something else I see in this is insecurity and placing your security in God instead of in other people and things and um, in a secure way of life as opposed to prison and <coughs> those kinds of things as well. Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, so much relates to the object of our trust. And when we really trust the Lord, then He is our security. And it changes everything. It changes how we look at things. Well, in terms of how we look at things, I I believe, too, we sometimes look at each other and we see interests or um, uh, environment or position and we assume we have nothing in common and we overlook the most obvious and that is that we're in this together we are fellow Christians we do have things in common but yet we don't seek a commonness there we want to find commonness in our hobbies or in our you know special interests and lo and behold we do have something in common and so why don't we try to cultivate that but now we we look at their differences and we say, no, what would we do together? If we were all thinking about and talking about and sharing more together in spiritual things, we would be sharing together in the very thing that unifies us and that draws us closer together. You know, and I think I think maybe sometimes we don't we don't we don't involve ourselves enough with those kinds of things that would bond us together. It may be a good thing that we never met Jesus personally because we may not have liked his his, his whiny voice or his uh, you know his looks or you know <laughs> the way we judge people today. You know, is it possible that we would have just wow. I don't want to be close. I don't want to be around him. He's he's he gets too close to my personal space, and you know. <laughs> as that, you know, who wants to be around a homeless person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is a whole lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Good points. Other comments. Kind of like what my study Bible said. A friend of mine's got a, a Greek literal translation, but in the Greek. If you were to say the exact Greek in English on verse 6, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Greek translation would be, I will never, ever, ever forsake you. And I like that thought as in thinking that, you know, no matter who in this world can forsake me, I've still got God. I've still got His help. And that's the one that really counts, you know. Sometimes we want to put our our, our devotion, our love, and our, our support. We want others to support us, but we tend to forget that we always have the one that can truly help us with all these things supporting us. And no matter who else forsakes us and who else we we lose support of, that that God will always be there for us, as long as, of course, we obey Him. And, you know, that gives me more confidence than anything else. It's just, like it says in the end of verse 6, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. It's it's that getting that part down, not fearing. Not thinking, what am I going to do? I'm so alone in this world, no recognizing that. I have no, why am I fearing, you know, God's going to help me do this. Amen. Very good. Other thoughts? Art, uh, seven through nine. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow 
whose faith followed, considering, considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried, carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not <coughs> not with foods which which have not profit, profited those who have been accompanied with them. So remember those who were your teachers in the past, verse seven, and follow them. Think about the outcome of their faith and life and, and follow what they taught you. Now why would he say that to these Hebrews? <clears throat> I'm guessing they're listening, listening to someone else now. Obviously, because they are starting to drift away and go back into the Judaism and all that. He's saying, I want you to remember those who taught you in the past. I want you to remember the lessons you learned from faithful Christians. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has not changed. You know, he teaches the same thing now as he did then. So don't be carried away by various and strange teachings. Don't let yourself go after these other things, uh, particularly perhaps some of the food laws, um, I think would be the idea. Perhaps they were tempted to go back to binding the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament law. He said, those things don't really profit you. Don't go after those teachings. Go after the teachings of those who blazed the trail among you. Because after all, Jesus has not changed. He has an unchanging word for us. When somebody comes along with a new teaching today, different from what we have received in the scriptures, I think that would be an appropriate passage. Jesus Christ hasn't changed. You've got an innovation. It didn't come from the Lord. Comments and questions? At church, we were we have this Bible app thing. We have this assembly after we were talking about baptism, and uh, in the back of the Bibles that we used there, it had a definition of it, and it was more the definition that the Baptists use. It shows you that even though it is in written in this cover, it's not always the inspired word of God. Some of the stuff man has added. And we always need to go back to, the, to what God says. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. We can't just trust anything we hear or, you know, buy or whatever. It's only the Lord that's reliable. Is his point, too, there in, in 7, kind of the by their fruit you will know them? In other words, they may say, they may say, things that are real catchy and sound good, but you need to pay attention to those who over the long haul have proven themselves by their actions. Sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, they have ended up in a good place. They've ended up where you want to be. You might look at 7 and 9. We can make a lot of specific contrasts between these two, uh, two verses. Um... Uh, that that's maybe not be as easy as uh, you know just anything, but but let's look at it a second. What's the verse seven has to remember and imitate? What's the contrasting thing in verse nine? Carried away. Yeah, do not be carried away. All right, verse seven has um, those who spoke the word of God to you. Verse 9, this is not explicit, but it's implied in the text that the contrast in verse 9 is what? I guess false. Yes. In verse 7, you have the word of God. What's the contrast in verse 9? Strange doctrines. Yeah, varied and strange teachings. 
in verse 7 you have the result of their conduct, or consider the result of their conduct. What do you have in verse 9? It's a little harder. They weren't benefited? Yes, they weren't benefited. In verse 7 you have their faith. In verse 9 I think the best contrast would be what? I think so. You see how they're they're really quite parallel in a contrasting uh, way. So you've got in seven those who taught the truth and nine the false teachers. And just all the contrast between them. What was your second one? My second one was the former leaders versus the strange teachers. But the strange teachers, that's not explicit in verse nine. It's implied. Seeing that, I think, just makes the contrast a little sharper and stronger. <coughs> we see that. <clears throat> Anything else to verse 9? All right, 10 to 14. from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. There's just a whole lot in that. It's a really powerful section. Um... And we just have to go back and think through some things. Um, Who had the right to eat the animals offered in sacrifice at the tabernacle? The priests. The priests, yeah. Now, when the blood of certain animals was taken into the holy place, what had to be done with the body of that animal? Burned outside the camp. Yes, it had to be taken outside the camp and burned. And that seemed to be kind of the distinction. The animals that the blood actually came into the holy place it was their bodies that were taken outside the camp and burned. Um, I've got a couple of references if you want them. In, Le- in Leviticus 6.30, but no sin offering of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place shall be eaten and shall be burned with fire. And then in uh, Leviticus 16 in the day of atonement, verse 27, but the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. So, in the Old Testament sacrifices, when the sacrifice was of such a level of importance that the blood was brought inside (laughs) the tabernacle, then the body of that animal had to be taken outside the camp and burned. Now, what about Jesus? What happened to his body? He was crucified outside the city. Outside the city. And it was crucified as a criminal outside really of the camp of Judaism in a more spiritual sense, let's say. They had rejected him. So, what are we going to do to be able to enjoy the blessings of Christ's sacrificed body? We're going to have to have the courage to go outside the camp of Judaism and join Jesus out there. Because, you know, that's where his body was and is. And um, the, the hard thing about that is going outside the camp 
is to risk scorn and reproach and social, you know, rejection, social uh, ostracism. That's the, I mean, you know, when you have to be a Christian, you have to leave behind the approval and the acceptance of the people in the world. You leave behind the security, the respect, the camaraderie many times. You think about these Jewish Christians who were having to leave behind the closeness with their fellow Jews in Judaism and they were being ridiculed and and persecuted in various ways and that was really difficult. It's hard to have to go outside the camp. It's hard to have to cast your lot outside the circle, outside the gang, outside the clique, in any sense. And that's what he says they're going to have to do. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. (coughs) That's where our future is. It, it, It requires a lot. Um, to to leave what we know, um, but he says we here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. You know, if you cast your lot inside earthly Jerusalem, it's going to be shaken; it'll be removed. We've got the city outside the camp. And you go back to eleven eight. 11.10, how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, were, Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going, but he was looking for that city. He was looking for, for what the Lord had promised. And that's what we have to do. We have to go out. Go out of everything that seems secure, everything that, that we, we want approval from, and go out, except the reproach, because we're looking for the real city. Um, that's, I think this is, this is an outstanding exhortation. Uh, it's so good it's hard to do it justice. I think this is almost the climax of the exhortations in the book. Comments and thoughts so far on this. Remember back to 1033 talking about their sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Don't forget about the fact that these Christians were really suffering from being looked down on and rejected and mocked and scorned by their fellow Jews. That is really hard to do. I mean, It not that what we face constantly. The pressure to fit in, fit in, versus the challenge to go out and be different and be willing to accept the scorn and the reproach and the ridicule. As hard as that is when you're talking about being separated from the world, it's even harder when you have issues with brethren in the church and... I think that that's probably more like what these people felt because these were people who had always believed the same way they had. But when churches split over doctrinal issues or if there are issues of sin in a church, I think that you feel much the same way as these people did, having to turn away (coughs) from relatives and friends when they've gone the wrong way. So it would have been really hard for them because they had worshipped with and shared their love of God together with these Jewish brethren of theirs. And so going outside the camp was really, that's a weighty thing. And you can see why they were being tempted to, to crawl back into the camp. They just hated to leave all of that. I just again, think about Abraham when he when he was called obeyed by going out to a place. This is 
The call of Hebrews is the call to go out. Now, one thing that he says that I think we need to keep in mind is verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. We have something they can't have. They don't share in. That's what he's trying to say in Hebrews. Yes, we have to go out. Yes, we have to take the scorn and the ridicule and the imprisonment and the seizure of the property and who knows what else. But look at what we get, something so much better. We have an altar they can't eat of. Now what's our altar? Yes. We have Christ. We have, we have the cross. We have his sacrifice. We get to share in the blessings of that sacrifice and they can't. We have a city they can't come into. We have something so much better. Abraham was looking for a city that was much better than the city he'd gone out from. Yes, we have to go out. And I think it's appropriate for us, maybe even if not the first application, for us to think about going out from the world. Because sometimes that's the hardest thing for us. And man... They look at you and they think this is so stupid. This is so ridiculous. You're turning your back on so much. You know, you could have so much in the world. You could have acceptance. You could have, you could have success. You could have money. You could have girls. You could have pleasure. You could have so much. Why would you ever turn your back on that? And the answer is, we have something you can't have. And it's, it's the thing that will last. It's the city that has foundations. Things you're going for. They're going to be shaken and gone. We have something solid. But we have to have the courage to go out, outside the camp, bearing his reproach. That's, I think that's, that's such a powerful and preachable paragraph. <clears throat> Comments and questions? And the blessings are truly now and later. I think too often we just see the later blessings. It's just the, oh, oh we, eventually there's going to be heaven. But the real blessings are now. The real contentment, the real satisfaction, the real joy comes now. When do we eat of the altar? Not just later. We get to eat of it now. We get to share in Christ's death and uh, maybe even a slight allusion to the Lord's Supper which is such a blessed moment and then more fully to partake in the sacrifice of Christ and the forgiveness Christ gives and the fellowship we have with Christ in every sense that is worth so much more what we have now is so much better tell me that these people who are giving their lives to sex and substances and success and, and enslavement to people's approval, tell me they're happy. <laughs> tell me that's the life. Good grief. They, they, they try to make it seem like that. They try to convince you. It goes back to that song I refer to every once in a while that actually the other day somebody showed me who, who sung that I forget now somebody was showing me I think it was on TV or something uh, uh, was it I don't think it was Barry Manilow I don't know maybe it was <laughs> anyhow the, the, that song It Never Rains in Southern California you know that song it's not Barry Manilow I don't know who it was who was it whoever it was I think somebody uh, but but the idea of the guy going out to Hollywood and you know somebody comes out to visit him after a while and he says basically tell everybody I'm happy tell everybody I'm successful tell everybody I've got so many offers I don't know which one to take and and what did they always say it never rains in Southern California and in the chorus it's like no it never rains in Southern California it pours you know in other words he hadn't been successful at all it's been horrible but but don't tell them how you found me don't tell them how you found me give me a break. That was, that was my generation. Was yes, Campbell? Mm. 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 It reminds me of Ryan Stone Campbell. Mm. It's kind of that style, anyway. Uh, 
But but yeah, I mean, the, the worldly people are just trying to make you think they're happy. They're just trying to, to you know, make everybody think that, that, you know, they're doing great. So, I mean, that's not where the real life is. Again, what's the theme word of Hebrews? <coughs> better. What we have is better. Don't let anybody, you know, kid you to think otherwise. I don't know. I think this is really powerful. I really like this, but I can't do it justice. I like what you said, and something that you said kind of struck me. You said, "Look what you have in this world. In this world, this world's gonna be gone. You know, that's it's just fleeting. You know, it's something it's not gonna last you. It kind of reminds me of the illustration she used a couple of chapters ago about you know, if I can give you a million dollars, you have three days to spend it, and you gotta live as a beggar the rest of your life. You know, it wouldn't be worth it. Yeah, I can have so much in this world, but." After all, that's going to go away. There's a community pleasure in it. And if I give up those things now, I will have an eternity of, you know, really, to live instead of giving up 70 years of my life for this. Yes. And John's point is, really, what you get now is so much greater than what you give up if you really stop and think about it. Who could trade Jesus' presence with us on any trinket this world dangles in front of us? Shoot. It's often easy to realize that we don't want the, you know, the millions of dollars and the, you know, the big, uh, the big things. But a few hundred thousand would be okay. <laughs> you know, I'm okay not being a millionaire, but I think we often look at it that way. We were able to, oh, and and that's how we look at the scripture when it talks about rich. That's those people. And really, you know, I, I, I really like, I, maybe because I can relate to this so much and need this so much, but I like verse 13, bearing his reproach. I mean, it's not even the money, it's the acceptance that I think is most hardest for me to give up. You know, it's the thing that's most tempting. You want to be accepted. You want people to not think, look down on you. And, you know, the willingness to bear his reproach, the willingness to accept the ridicule, the rejection of whatever comes, <clears throat> doesn't make any difference what anybody thinks of us. We want God's pleasure. I think, to me, that's a big thing. I, I really, I don't know, that's meaningful to me in this, in this book, that some of what they were facing was just the the ostracism, the rejection, and we've got to, that's exactly what we've got to do. We go outside of him, bearing his reproach. Other thoughts and comments? Fifteen to nineteen. <clears throat> Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not de- neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Through him we offer our sacrifice. Now they, the Jews, offered sacrifices through whom? Yes, but we, through him, offer what kind of a sacrifice? Continual. A continual sacrifice of through what part of our anatomy? Our lips, yes. That's the sacrifice we give God, is the constant praise, thanking him 
God's blessings in Christ are so abundant that he can never be praised and thanked adequately. That's why he says continually offer up. It just there's just there's just more always. When would you ever really feel like you had given God the thanks he deserved? Never. Never. So just constantly through Christ praise and thank him. And not only that, but there's a connection between honoring God and serving others. Verse 16, do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices God is pleased. And of course that's our highest goal is to please God. And so we offer sacrifices like praise and thanks and service to others. Those are the sacrifices we have that we offer to the Lord. Comments and questions on 15 and 16. In 17, these are a little, maybe slightly more random thoughts. What does he encourage to be done in 17? To obey. Obey. Those who obey. What do he's got in mind? Just thinking elders. I think so. Why would you say that? Um, because they... Uh, watch over your souls and give an account. Yes, I think so. And so you need to obey and respond to those who are God-appointed to watch over you and to give an account for the sheep in the fold. Um, What kind of uh, doctor do you want? One who spares your feelings? Or one who's willing to step on your toes to tell you the truth. You know, what kind of elder do you want? One who's all concerned about you feeling good? Or one who'll tell you the truth, even if it makes you, kind of hurts you? You know, they're going to give an account. You cooperate with them so that it's not grievous for them to give an account of your soul on the day of judgment. That's really helpful in seeing the responsibility of elders. Elders have the responsibility of watching over the flock, of shepherding and guiding, and they're more or less responsible for the spiritual well-being of the Christians. Um, I knew of a situation recently where um, some people were thinking about placing membership in a congregation and went to the elders and basically said, look, you know, we want to talk to you because after all, you know, we're, we're sort of placing ourselves under your oversight and, you know, we, we, you're you know, you'll be the ones, you know, shepherding us and, and so forth. And we want to talk to you about that. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's nothing like that. No, we're just, we just over the church. We don't have anything to do with, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> you know. Well, Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Where we go wrong here? <laughs> but, I mean, I don't know many elders who'd say that. I know of some who act that way. You know, I mean, the work of elders is not primarily business management. It's primarily shepherding sheep. <laughs> and, um, you know, as Christians, we ought to cooperate fully with them. And realize, I mean, when an elder or even a concerned brother comes to us and talks to us about something we need to change in our lives, we need to listen and respond. You know, I mean, we may not like it, but it's far more good. So, so, you know, we ought to not be defensive about that. Uh, and you know how that is. <clears throat> I mean, if you go to a brother and warn him about something in his life, and that brother falls all over himself thanking you for caring about him so much, what will you do the next time you see him doing something wrong? Don't warn him again. What if he becomes really defensive and belligerent and starts attacking you? Or or he's real sensitive and gets their feelings hurt and threatens never to come back again. Or whatever. Then what do you do the next time? There is so... We need so much the help of our brethren. But I know Christians who have the reputation. You better not correct them. 
Either they'll come down your throat, or they'll get their feelings hurt, and they'll never get over it. Guess what they don't get? Correction. But a brother who always receives it well and with appreciation, well, they get all kinds of help that way. Because they make you feel good when you help them that way. Which are we? It's like getting over that hump. And then once you get over that hump, if you can get over it, I've thought about a lot about that lately. It just seems like it, it would be so easy to build one another up to a point that we all need to be if we all had that attitude. If we could all get over that hump and just accept those things and deliver those things in a way we could skip months of this tiptoeing around our feelings and, and cajoling people on a little bit at a time. Let's get to the let's get to the point. But we have to deal so much with each other's feelings and my feelings and I don't know. I'm just a lot lately thinking about that and how 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 quickly we could grow if we would just get past that. It's a challenge, isn't it? But that is it's so much better. And we really need to think about it because we developed that kind of reputation and nobody's going to try to help us because they're afraid to. And uh, it's one of the things that... <laughs> I really like about, you know, young people so often, they are much easier to correct and much, much less defensive when you try to do that. You know, I mean, sometimes you get to our, our age, and it's like nobody hears my age, actually, but, you know, get to my age, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, you think you know everything. And anybody who tries to cross you, you know, look out. So it's something for us all to think about, especially with those who are specially appointed to watch over our souls. Wow, a concerned elder comes to us and warns us about something. We'll listen. Respond. <coughs> verse 7 was sort of the former leaders, the ones who passed on. Verse 17 is the current ones. It's kind of the progression there, I think. How do you give this to fit the sacrifices and Jesus being outside the camp? Well, I don't think I It's like it's sort of stuck in here. Yeah, I think he's just kind of saying a few more things. Just like a close of the letter and... I I don't know. There may be something, but that's more where I'm at with that. I don't know. Did I do anything? Um, I've got it all under true worship, but I don't know why. Verse 2 and verse 16 are somewhere. Thought. Yes, that's true. I can get it down through 16, and I just can't get 17 to fit. I'm not sure what to say. I mean, I thought the verse, first four verses were pretty random, but you got that tied together for me pretty well, and now I'm back to randomness. I don't know what to say. There may be some connections I'm not seeing, so, but at the moment I don't see them. What does he want him to do in 18 and 19? Absolutely. You know, um, he feels like he deserves that in the sense he has a good conscience. He's been really trying to do the right thing. And he especially wants him to pray for him in what sense? Yeah. It makes me think that whoever wrote this was probably usually part of the group but he's unavoidably absent for some reason and he's asking their prayers especially that he can come back and join with them soon I don't know if he's in prison, I don't know if he's on a trip I don't know what it is but that uh, that's what it seems to me like isn't it interesting though how all the authors of the New Testament or many of them seem to believe so strongly that God answers prayers you know, I mean come down to the very final words of a letter and beg, please pray for us. Sometimes we may not ask others to pray for us because it seems selfish. But I think mostly we don't ask others to pray for us because we don't really think God will do much. If we did, wouldn't we ask it more? 
we all we sometimes we don't see much have much embarrassment with asking others to help us in other ways well the biggest way they'll help us is by praying for us sometimes you don't see how god does help us like a um if like babies are like born prematurely and then but they come through it and they're okay uh we'll think of that like oh the modern technology today helped and saved them. yes we can't see that god that's a good yeah yeah good point absolutely we we fail to see god's hand so often that it keeps us from praying we don't even recognize it when he is acting other comments I think it's easy to pray and then not look for the results it's similar but a little different um, you know wrapped up in asking for this or that or for whoever else and then they don't pay attention to the results I think it's easier to see the results when our praying has been more specific. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> if we're asking, why aren't we looking for the answer? <laughs> we go, what we ask for him to do something, and then we, and it happens, and then we forget about it. We don't go back to him and say thank you. Yes, kind of like uh, those uh, nine lepers mm-hmm. in Luke 17. We eagerly, uh, you know, haul away with the blessing and we don't ever think to thank the giver. Are we as uh, fervent and intense and frequent in our thanks as we were in our request? Other comments? All right, why don't we stop here then, and we'll uh, try to finish up 20 to 25 and start into 1 Timothy next Monday.